And if you brought your Bible, please open with me to Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. There was a Christian who invited her friend to attend church with her one Sunday morning. The friend just shook her head and said, I haven't gone to church in a long time, she said. Besides, it's too late for me. I've probably broken all seven commandments. Regardless of whether you have broken all ten commandments of the Old Testament in the Decalogue in the Old Testament, or all 614 that are outlined for us in all of the Old Testament, regardless of whether you've broken one or all 614, we want to declare this morning that redemption is not only possible, redemption is God's plan. Redemption is not only possible for every person in this room, redemption is God's plan for millions, if not billions, of his children that he desires to redeem for, his, for himself. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be working through Ephesians uh, over the course of the next uh, weeks and months. Uh, we're specifically going to be landing on verses 7 through 10 this morning, which only brings us halfway through one sentence that extends from verse 3 all the way to verse 15 in the book of Ephesians. This is one sustained sentence of praise to the glory of God's grace. And today, Paul zeroes in on one specific theme, praising God for redemption and God's plan for redemption. So, if you will uh, open with me to Ephesians, we're going to be reading through uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, if you brought your Bible. If we, you would like to honor the reading of God, not if you'd like to, please honor the reading of God's Word by standing, if you are able. If you're not able, that's cool, we totally understand, and God does as well. He made you that way. Let's uh, say, let's, let's read together, I'll read, you listen, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. In him, he's talking about in Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You may be seated, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for being such a kind and gracious God, for drawing us to yourself by grace. 
for redeeming us through the blood of your Son for the forgiveness of sins. Help us, God, to focus in on your grace this morning, to specifically see your plan for redemption so that we in our lives might not just experience the forgiveness of sins, but that we might be catapulted into praise for you because we have been redeemed. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, does anybody remember in the early 1980s watching the show, The A-Team? How we have a lot of A-Team fans here. A couple, maybe you've seen a couple episodes. Um, I'm not going to lie, I didn't see very many of them. It was just a little bit before my time, but, uh, but I remember the catchphrases rather well. You, especially probably the most famous one, Mr. T would say, there it is, I, I pity the fool. <laughs> I don't know why he would say that, but uh, he said that, and it was a pretty well-known catchphrase of his. Uh, well, these, this band of mercenaries, the A-team, would go and accomplish these death-defying missions uh, in order to kind of restore their name uh, after Vietnam. Uh, so, these, this band of mercenaries would come up with these huge plots in order to uh, accomplish these missions, uh, led by the colonel right there, and the colonel would come up with these schemes of saying, okay, this is how we're going to accomplish the mission. They would plan it all out, and they would start to perform it, and it would go absolutely haywire. Every single one of his plans was just got thrown out the window immediately, and, and there would be bombs that would be exploding, there would be cars that would be crashing, there would be this large, explosive, glorious, early 1980s cinematic achievement. Uh, and somehow, some way, at the end of the episode, everything always worked out. And usually with the background of explosions and car crashes and airplanes, people jumping out of airplanes, the colonel right there would have a cigar in his mouth. He'd fold his hands and he'd say, I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> you guys really enjoyed this, this show. I actually had to do research to figure this out. <laughs> You guys are like, I remember that episode. <laughs> Before the people of God experienced the arrival of Christ in the incarnation in the first Christmas, and before they experienced his death and his resurrection, people had many different plans for how God was going to redeem his people. But in the end, they all knew that somehow, some way. God was going to bring together his cosmic plan for redemption. And this is what Paul is glorifying God for in this passage. He, as a trained theological Jew, would have had an understanding of kind of two ages, understanding of the, the present age, this present evil age in which sin and death is reigning and which the nation of Israel is just kind of playing a, a role in. And then there would be a day of the Lord, which is a day of reckoning, in which would usher in the time that is to come, the age that is to come. And that would be an age full of life and health and 
perhaps even eternal life. But when Paul met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, these two age, this, this two-age structure that he had thought in his mind as a trained theological Jew wasn't thrown out the window, but he needed to put his theology back together in a, in a way that kind of made sense with the incarnation, the coming, and the arrival of the Messiah. So the two ages kind of got pushed together. And, 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 the, and the starting of the age of the Spirit began with the, de- with the resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of his Spirit. His entire theology was shaken. Redemption wasn't coming for the nation of Israel when the Lord would overthrow the Roman oppressors for their righteous works, as Paul previously understood it. He now understands that redemption has come specifically through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection as it's applied by the Spirit right now. This is why Paul praises God for saying, in him, in Christ, we have redemption in his blood. The word redemption in the original is apolutrusin. Everybody say apolutrusin. Apolutrusin was a commonly used term that means uh, liberation from imprisonment and bondage. It means a purchase price that would be offered by a Roman citizen that would pay for to buy back a slave's freedom. Paul doesn't use the term redemption here in the general cultural way that most people would have understood it in the first century, the background of Paul's thought is the understanding of God's redemption. God specifically redeeming the nation of Israel when he purchased the Israelite slaves from Egypt with the blood of the lamb during the Passover. Redemption in Paul's mind as a Hebrew would have been bound up with the Passover lamb that was slain for his people in order to free them from their slavery in Egypt and allow them to live freely in the promised land. And then it would have been bound up specifically with the temple sacrifices as they lived in this land and as they were redeemed from their sin as as it was prescribed to be offered in the Old Testament in the temple. But as a Christian who has now met the crucified and risen Christ, Paul sees that the Passover lamb and the sacrificial system, all of these signs in the Old Testament were pointing forward towards a greater sacrifice a greater redemption from sin that would come in the death of the person of Jesus Christ. All of this pointing forward to Jesus, so much so that Paul can say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It shook his whole worldview. He's saying, I can't be redeemed through meritorious works of the law. I can only be redeemed through faith in Christ by becoming a curse for me. One scholar says of this passage, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, the redemption that has been procured, or the redemption has been procured through his blood This abbreviated expression is pregnant with meaning. It signifies that Christ's violent death on the cross as a sacrifice is the means by which our deliverance has been won. It was obtained at a very great cost. 
Now, how much would you give up? How much would you pay in order for your children to be educated? Throw out a number. Priceless. Okay, some, some really great parents out there. But give me a ballpark estimate in order to put your children from kindergarten all the way through college. What's a ballpark number that you think you would pay? 100000 over there. Do I hear a million? <laughs> $100,000. A nice ballpark estimate. Parents would be, especially today, are willing to folk, fork, folk, fork over $100,000 just to ensure that their children are educated, that they receive an education. Would you be willing to pay that much for your children to be educated? My kid, I, well, I'm not. <laughs> they can get a job. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> How much would you be willing to pay in order to, get, to ensure that your children are educated? How about if you found out that your best friend had a run-in with the law and is in jail? How much would you be willing to pay in order to release... Some of you are smiling and nodding. What kind of friends do you have? <laughs> what kind of... <laughs> How much would you offer them in order to bail them out of jail? Well, God offered the blood of his very own son to bail us out of our spiritual jail. It's indescribable the cost that God was willing to pay in order to buy us back. And this redemption was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. This is, you might say, well, why was blood necessary for forgiveness? Well, forgiveness always costs something. Forgiveness always costs something. Think about a disagreement that you had with your coworker at some point. If they offended you, in order to genuinely forgive them and release them from the punishment that they deserve for their actions against you, it probably cost you something to forgive them. It might have cost you time at work. It might have cost you productivity when you could have been doing something else. It might have cost you emotional energy to restrain yourself and not seek justice and revenge in and of yourself. Forgiveness always comes with a price. When an offense occurs, someone always pays. And the price of our forgiveness from, from sin toward God is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what it costs in order to be forgiven. And it's because this metaphor of redemption involves a purchase price that it follows that God would describe, or excuse me, that Paul would describe God's grace towards us as riches, according to the riches of his grace. God chose to redeem us, to forgive our sin, according to the riches of his grace. Let's uh, think about this in economic terms for a minute. If you think of sin and forgiveness in economic terms, how much would it cost to forgive, let's say, a conservative estimate of one billion people? Let's say God is going to purchase and redeem one billion 
people. Let's start by saying the number of people, the sin that was involved, and the payment that it would cost. Now let's just use the state of Nevada as an example. Let's say there are one billion people in Nevada. Take that, city of Reno. You need to build some infrastructure. Let's say there are one billion people, and the sin that, let's say, let's be very modest because the, the, the people of Nevada are wonderful. People of Nevada are so gracious, loving, and kind. Let's say the worst thing that anybody ever did in the state of Nevada, the one billion people in the state of Nevada, was steal property less than $250. You accidentally took too many office supplies home from work, and you got caught. So the infraction for that would be about $1,000. It's a misdemeanor. A misdemeanor. The infraction for that would be a $1,000 fine and up to six months in jail. So in order for God to release that burden, if we're using the standards of the state of Nevada, which aren't necessarily extremely high, uh, for one billion people, it would cost God 500 mil- million years in prison and $1 trillion for God to release people from the debt of sin that they have caused against the state of Nevada. That doesn't even make a dent in the national debt. Now, we know that infractions against God are infinitely greater than theft of property less than $250. And yet, the Apostle Paul can confidently say, after reflecting on the cross, that he has redeemed all of his people from all of their sin for all of eternity by the riches of his grace. God voluntarily, willingly opened up the storehouses of his grace through the cross, and he said to his people, it is paid in full. Every sin that you have ever committed, every infraction, every lie that you have ever told, every ounce of sin and rebelliousness in your heart, God has said to you, if you are in Christ, I have paid for that. I went to the cross for that, to forgive you, to redeem you, to free you, to release you from your debt that you owe to me. And I've paid it in full. According to the riches of my grace. I wrote a check for that in the riches of my, from the riches of the storehouses of my grace bank account, and I signed it in the blood of my son. Brothers and sisters, this redemption is ours. God did this for us. God did not redeem angels. There won't be an angel in heaven that ever sings from the guts of their soul amazing grace, how sweet the sound that has saved a wretch like me. Angels don't get to say that. 
They don't get to sing that. There is no redemption for angels. They sin, they're condemned and judged. That's our song. We get to sing that song from the depths of our heart to the glory and the praise of the awesome God that has given his very own son for people like you and like me. Brothers and sisters, this redemption is ours. Some of you have been coming to church for years. Some of you have been coming to church for decades, and this language of sin and trespass and redemption and cross and blood, it just rolls off your back like water to on a duck. And you just sit there thinking through like, okay, here we go with the blood and redemption and cost and payment, and okay, let's go to Chili's. This is ours, brothers and sisters. This is uniquely for the church, for God's people that he has purchased with his own blood. If this doesn't fire up your soul, now you don't need to be expressive like I am. You don't need to be expressive like the other people here. But in your own soul, in your own way, when you hear about the cross and the redemption that God has given, through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the cross, there should be something within you that wells up and says, yes, amen, that was for me, that was for my sin, that was for my transgression, that was for my trespasses. He did that for me, not exclusively for me, but for the praise of his, to the glory of his grace in and through me. I feel like I needed like a yes and an amen. amen. I promised myself like, okay, I, was, I promised myself, I, I said to myself before coming up here, I said, Carl, don't say, can I get an amen? That forces it. That makes people not be spontaneous. But uh, can I get an amen? <laughs> Through the blood of the cross, we have redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sin. But this redemption is according to the riches of God's grace that have been, and listen to this word that Paul uses here, the riches of God's grace that has been lavished on us. Lavished on us. This word lavishes, it means in abundance, in excess, going beyond what is necessary. God, according to the riches of his grace, has lavished upon his people, as we see in verse 8. The, the word brings forth the imagery of being showered with grace. I, I love it when sports teams win their championships. They win the title for the NBA, the NFL, whatever sport it might be, and they go into the locker room, and there's this abundance of super expensive champagne bought and paid for by the owner of that team. There's an abundance of expensive champagne, and out of celebration for their accomplishment of that, of that season, winning the championship, they shower the most expensive champagne upon all of the players in celebration for the accomplishment that has just been done by those players. 
brothers and sisters, because of the accomplishment that God has done in his son through his cross and through his resurrection, God is throwing a grace champagne celebration for his children. He is lavishing upon us the most expensive spiritual riches that could ever be purchased. And he's throwing open the storehouses of his grace and it is landing on his people in celebration so that it would cause within their soul to rise up and well up and say, what an amazing accomplishment our God has done for us. What an amazing privilege it is to be on this team in which our star player has won the championship for us. The Apostle Paul can praise God confidently for lavishing us with grace because he's received insight and wisdom from God about God's plan. God's climactic plan, it was concealed in the Old Testament. We only saw it in shadows and types and symbols and signs before Christ. The prophets pointed forward to a time in which the Christ would be revealed, but no one knew the day nor the hour when he would arrive and unlock the, the riches of God's grace. But now, through the cross and the resurrection and the sending of his spirit into the mind of the believer, the Apostle Paul can say the wisdom and the insight of God's plan has been fully revealed. And this purpose is set forth in Christ, Paul says at the end of verse 9, moving into 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is called the summing up of all things or the reconciliation of all things. Remember that diagram that we had last week, these two ages, the age of flesh and sin and death, the age of Christ and life in heaven have been converged into the present day life of the Spirit in which we already have received the forgiveness of sins due to the cross of Jesus Christ. We already have received the Spirit into our hearts. We already see the church advancing against the forces of sin and death and darkness, but yet we still live in this age of flesh and sin and death, and we still go to funerals. We still wage war against sin and the fullness of the new heaven and the new earth has not come just yet. Paul is praising God that one day God will unite all things in heaven and all things on earth under the sole lordship of Jesus Christ. And he says this has been the cosmic plan of God from the beginning. Abraham didn't know this. Moses didn't know this. David didn't know this. Paul now says this mystery that was concealed in the Old Testament now in Christ has been revealed. This was the cosmic plan of God from the beginning. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. God was not taken for a loop when Satan deceived many, many other angels into rebellion. God always had a plan. God always 
was carrying forward this cosmic plan to magnify the glory of his grace. And this plan was set forth in Christ for the fullness of time. The phrase fullness of time in this context has the, the same meaning that the term that, uh, that Paul uses for the church attaining the, the fullness of Christ in uh, chapter 3. Excuse me. Nope, chapter 4, verse 9. The fullness of Christ through attaining the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and therefore it kind of connotes not just the fullness, like the filling up, but it, it, it connotes the intention of a stated goal. So just as it's the intended goal for the church to attain unity in faith and maturity, it's the intended goal for Christ to unite all things, things in, things in heaven and things on earth, all underneath his lordship for the fullness of time. This is his plan. This is the reason why we come to church every Sunday, brothers and sisters. As we gather together to affirm our faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ by His Spirit, we are corporately together saying there is a day that is coming when Christ will unite, will sum up all things under His rule. We may not see it at work. We may not see it in, in the culture in general. But one day it is coming and it is going to crash into this world and all things, both in heaven and on earth, will be united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So we need to gather together to affirm that, to encourage one another, to press on in this understanding of his church. One scholar writes of this passage, the, the emphasis is now on a universe which is centered and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up and the bringing together of the fragmented and alienated elements of the universe. All things in Christ as the focal point. Things in heaven and things on earth. The focus of all of it will be pointed toward our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is not just a ruler on earth as if political rule over this world would bring about lasting peace. Jesus is not just a ruler in heaven that is so detached from the plight of humanity that he removes himself from the concerns of human beings. He became a human. He descended to earth. He took on flesh so that when he died and then he rose into the highest of heavens, he would be the one, the single ruler that would be able to unite all things underneath his authority. All things would be summed up under his reign. He is the one who is able to rule both domains in heaven and on earth. And this is why... Paul uses the term things in heaven and things on earth rather than just saying ruling over everything. He wants to know that both of these domains will come and crash underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. The word summing up here is called uh, anakephaleosestai. 
that comes from the root word anacatheliosis, which is really easy to say if you know the nursery rhyme. Supercalifragilistic anacatheliosis. <laughs> it means the summing up of everything in heaven and everything on earth is summed up underneath the totality and focused on the totality of his reign. The already, what we have already by his death and in his resurrection, what we have already in the spirit, but yet what is to come in the rule and the reign of heaven as flesh and sin and death is pushed out of the sphere of earth and Christ and life and heaven is all crashed into the earth by the coming and the return of Christ. Architects are some pretty clever people, aren't they? Do we have any architects? We need to talk. We need to recruit some men. <laughs> architects are clever people. They make a plan, they submit the blueprints, and the construction crew, they get to work. In the divine scheme of things, God has unfolded his plan. We have the blueprints of his divine cosmic plan. Everything will come under the authority of Jesus. Rebellion in the heavenlies, rebellion on earth, it won't last. God has enacted the first decisive steps of his plan in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. But in the fullness of time, everything will be united under his authority. So it's like the architect has submitted the plans and the decisive steps of laying the foundation and beginning to build this beautiful body or beautiful uh, uh, building has already happened, but yet it's not yet fully complete. And as the church advances and as Christ returns, we will see this beautiful building erected to the glory of God where we're all going to live in a big, big house with a big, big yard. Brothers and sisters, this has massive, massive implications for your life. The forces of sin and darkness and evil, they won't last. They're temporary. They're for this age. They're for this body of flesh that we live in right now. And one day, we will receive the fullness of a new body, a new heaven, and a new earth. And right now, we have received the Spirit as a guarantee and a promise of those things to come. The unfolding plan of God ensures that sin, death, and evil won't stand against you forever. Everything will come underneath Jesus' lordship. And those who fight against him eternally will flee from him forever. Everything will be united in him. This isn't speculation. This isn't looking in and hoping, well, I think maybe this might happen or this might not happen. This is spiritual fact. This is more real than the very next breath that, that is coming out of your nostrils. And you need to come to grips with this reality. You need to face this reality. God isn't going to keep this world as the status quo forever. This age will not last your hidden sin 
will not remain hidden forever. There is a day of reckoning coming when God will reconcile heaven and reconcile earth in Christ. And the question that we all need to ask ourselves in light of this is, are we right with him? When it speaks of redemption, does it speak of us? Have we experienced the redemption in Christ through his blood? He has purchased and paid for the forgiveness of sins of all of his children. But the question that you need to ask of yourself is, is that you? Has he purchased you? Have you confessed your sin? Have you trusted him for for new life for you? I can't answer that for you. The church can't answer that for you. Only God, by his spirit, can answer that for you through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you right with him? Can you sing genuinely from your heart, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness? Can you sing, there is nothing but the blood of Jesus from your soul with joy because all of your sin is confessed before him? You're not hiding anything from him because a day of reckoning is coming. And that day of reckoning come is going to be full of joy and passion and love and, and worship of Christ because of his redemption for those who have been redeemed. And it's going to be a day where those who are not flee from him and say, how dare you take away the things that I have built my life upon? Brothers and sisters, as the worship team comes forward here, come on, worship team. As the worship team comes forward here, and before we go into prayer and singing of our last song, let's ask ourselves the question, can I praise God for the redemption that I have in Christ? Have I brought everything before him in my own heart for forgiveness and reconciliation? Am I prepared for the the uniting of all things, the uniting of the things in heaven and the uniting of the things in life and things in heaven and things on earth? This is going to happen. Some of us in this room need to spend some time doing some business with God during this last song and resolve to say, that sin that I have been keeping hidden from God is going to be brought to light and I'm going to put it before the cross. And I'm going to glory in the redemption that has been purchased for me so that I can sing from the depths of my soul there is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Perhaps moving forward after the service today, you need to talk with somebody who's here. And you need to own that sin and and say, I have done this and I need to hear somebody else say to me that I am forgiven by God. And we'd love to provide that for you. Come talk to myself or one of the shepherds and we'd love to to pray with you and speak the gospel to you in that way. But let's spend some time doing some business with God as this last song is being played and then when you're ready, let's sing our guts out as the redeemed people of God who have been forgiven of all of our sin by his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you for the blood of Jesus Christ, for being redeemed 
through the cross, for being reconciled to you that is a foreshadow and a taste of the reconciliation that is coming for all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Help us, O oh God, during this time to see the, the glory of confession, the beauty of, of laying everything before you so that we might receive your forgiveness. Help us in these places where we need to do some business with you, to, that your spirit would reveal them so that we might praise you with a pure heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.